0: Alright, I'm Emily, I'm one of the co-pastors here, and we have been in the sermon series we've been calling the Elements of Worship, where we've been going through various aspects of our Sunday service just to try and help us better connect with some of the rituals that we do every week. And so today we're going to end this series by talking about the Lord's Prayer. I thought if if you'd like to use it as reference, it's on the back of your bulletin because we say it after communion every week. But I'm going to begin in an unusual place for talking about the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to start way back in Genesis chapter 14. And I promise you I will eventually bring the point around, but it might take me a little while. So just give me a little bit of space here to unfold a thought. So in Genesis 14, there's a story about a land called Kedorlaomer. Doesn't that just sort of roll off your tongue? Kedorlaomer. And Kedorlaomer had subjugated five little mini kingdoms around it. And for 12 years, it had subjugated them. And a couple of these little mini kingdoms were nothing more than just small towns, but they were ruled by local leaders that they called kings. And so we presume that having been conquered, these little kingdoms around them were called upon to fight for the king of Kedorlaomer. Or perhaps they were subjugated to extra taxes. Because in the ancient world, when you were conquered, that often meant fighting for your new ruler and paying them money. So regardless of what subjugation meant in real terms, it was bad enough that after those 12 years, those five kingdoms rose up to try and fight Kedorlaomer and throw over their rule, because they wanted to be free to govern themselves. And those five kingdoms, you might recognize a couple of them, are Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboiom, and Bela. And so the king of Kedorlaomer, realizing that he was about to be attacked by these five different rebel groups he went and he rounded up three of his own allies to go out and fight them and so they went out to battle the rebels against this Kedorlaomer and his friends in a valley that was just southeast of the Dead Sea now it turned out that this valley that they went to fight in was filled with natural tar pits now I googled what a natural tar pit would look like because I was curious and they look like exactly what they sound like Right, it's these like just places in the ground where petroleum bubbles up, and it sometimes turns into tar. And so I was like, oh, I could see it would be easy if you're just running through a field, and all of a sudden you're just getting stuck or sinking down in these tar pits. That's just a little extra fun fact I found out. There's a bunch of them near L.A. So this valley is just filled with tar pits, and so some of those rebels, right, some of those people who were trying to win their freedom, got stuck in them as they were going out to fight Omer. And so seeing what was happening with all of the rebels, the leaders of Sodom and Gomorrah were like, oh gosh, all of our people are falling into tar pits, so they ran away. And all of the men that weren't in the tar pits, they saw what was happening and they fled up into the hills. Right? So this is a story about a failed rebellion. And it takes place in just a few short verses. It's like this small, seemingly insignificant story. Well, after the rebels had gone through the tar pits and the other fighters had run away, the triumphant king of Kedorlaomer and his allies, they made a victory ride into the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they raided all of their valuables and they took all of their food. It was like classic pillaging and just going through and making sure that the people of those five kingdoms were sure like who was the boss, right? We're the rulers. And as they went through Sodom and Gomorrah, they also kidnapped a man named Lot. And Lot was the nephew of a rich nomadic warlord named Abram, whom we know as Abraham, you know, like the Abraham of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Abram is upset about this. And so he eventually goes and he fights Kedorlaomer and he rescues his nephew Lot and he overthrows Kedorlaomer and he ends up freeing all of those five kingdoms, right? So the story ends up with a happy ending, unless you're Kedorlaomer, but the reputation of those five kingdoms that got stuck in the tar pits and ran away had been spoiled. Well, the names of those five regions, Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboiim, and Bela, they only come up two more times in all of Scripture grouped together like that. Sodom and Gomorrah come up in another unrelated story. But those five or those or four of the five come up together two more times. And the first time that these regions are mentioned together is in the book of Deuteronomy. So in this story, the great prophet and leader Moses, he was talking to all of the ancient Hebrew people. He had gathered them all together, and he was warning them that they shouldn't worship different idols that were made of wood or gold or stone or silver. And he's telling them, he's like, look, if you guys worship these useless idols that are made of, you know, just regular stuff, God's going to be angry with you. So Deuteronomy 29 Moses is saying the people that worship these idols, God is going to single them out from all the tribes of Israel for disaster. According to all of the curses of the covenant written in the book of the law, he's going to cause diseases to break out and calamities to happen. Stay with me here. The whole land will be a burning waste of salt and sulfur. It will be like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his fierce anger. And all the nations will ask, why has the Lord done this to the land? Why this fierce, burning anger? And the answer will be, it's because the people abandoned the covenant of the Lord. And I think, wow, this is kind of a confusing picture of God. You know, that Moses is talking about God as if he or she is easily provoked. Right? That when God is mad and people don't do what God asks, that God goes out and he destroys people and he destroys the land in fits of fury and he burns the ground and he makes it impossible to grow crops. Right? And then Moses brings up those rebels. He's like, remember that old story hundreds of years ago that's tucked in that little bit of Genesis that everybody knows about? Yeah, but God did that to those people. And he's going to get so mad at you that he's going to do to you what he did to them. Right? So this is a, kind of a pretty shocking interpretation of that story about the tar pits that Moses gives us. Right? So the story about the tar pits happens hundreds of years later, Moses interprets that as God being fiercely angry with them. And then another few hundred years later, there's another prophet named Hosea. This is in Hosea 11. The second time those five rebel groups are mentioned is when the Hebrew prophet Hosea had a different interpretation of what happened in the tar pits. And he talks about how God isn't like a fierce God. He's not an angry deity who punishes his followers because they don't listen to him or because they listen to other gods. He describes God in a much different way. So this is Hosea 11, 1 to 4, 8 and 9. So when, when Hosea talks about the names Israel or Ephraim, he's talking about like all the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, right? So he says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. This is speaking in the voice of God. Right, so he's talking about the Hebrew people as if he's like a loving father and they're his children. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals. These are, you know, some of those golden idols. They burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they didn't realize that it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness and with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek. Oh, that's such a beautiful picture. Like, there's nothing better than, like, a little baby's really big soft cheek and you put it next to your cheek and it's just so lovely. Or even a toddler. Like, if you've got, like, a five or even a seven-year-old that would come up and just, like, smash their face against you. I was just, like, one of the best feelings and that's what Hosea that's what is describing God like with his children. He's like, I'm like one who lifts a little child to the cheek and presses them against me. And I bend down to feed them, right? It's this very humble, um, like a, this pose of, of like humility. And God says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How could I hand you over, Israel? How could I treat you like Adma? How could I make you like Zeboiom? No, my heart recoils within me and all of my compassion is aroused. I won't carry out my fierce anger. I won't devastate Ephraim, for I'm God, I'm not a man. I'm the holy one among you. I will not come against their cities. And I think that Hosea's lovely prose, it really stands in contrast to the interpretation that Moses gives of God. You know, Moses is talking about how God destroys Adma and Zeboiim, you know, those rebel groups in his anger. God threatens to do the same to all the other Hebrew people if they don't do what he asks. But Hosea, the prophet, looks at that and he says, no, 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 no. That's all wrong. That's not who God is. He says, no matter what my people do, even though they sacrifice to the Baals, I'm gonna help them and I'm gonna heal them and I'm gonna love them and they may not even know it was me. Hosea writes, he says, they did not realize it was I who healed them. Right? And he describes God as compassionate as a deity who would not destroy people's cities and land. And he describes God as a loving father, as a father who wants good for his children and who's patient and gentle and kind and whose heart recoils even thinking about Adma and Zeboyim right, those two rebel groups who were defeated. He says, look, all of my compassion is aroused. Well, within the Bible, sometimes we see different opinions forming on various topics. Even on topics as central as the character and the nature of God, right? And that doesn't mean that one is necessarily, um, like, I don't want to just say, oh, Moses was wrong in his interpretation. That wasn't like the entirety of Moses's picture of God, but it certainly was within that that segment of Deuteronomy. You know, uh, Moses and Hosea, they both hear that story about the tar pits and they came away with different interpretations as to its meaning and to how God is. And those texts are allowed to stand in tension because in the Jewish tradition, wrestling with the narratives is the path to wisdom. Right? That wisdom is found in the arguing and in the discussing and presenting one clear, coherent message isn't actually the point of the Hebrew scriptures. And then often Bible figures, including Jesus, they teach from one stream or another where there are differing opinions that have been offered. And so I think that starting the Lord's prayer with our Father who art in heaven, Jesus then falls in this stream of viewing God the way that Hosea views God. That like Hosea, Jesus talks about God as a father, right? Moses didn't talk about God that way. God was more of like a more distant deity. Jesus talks about God as someone who's accessible to us, with whom we can talk. You know, that same God that puts a child's cheek to his cheek, Every time Jesus addresses God as Father or describes God as a father, he tends to lean into that generous, merciful description. You know, think about the prodigal son if you're familiar with that parable. Like even when the sons, both of them at some point are misbehaving, you know, even when they sometimes deserve punishment or banishment, the father, he kind of defies expectations and he's lavish with his forgiveness and with his kindness. And that comes from one part of the Jewish tradition that Jesus is highlighting and promoting. Right? It's not fair to say, oh, the Hebrew scriptures, God is just this fierce, angry God and we have to see Jesus to see a loving God. That's not true. Both of those streams existed within the Jewish tradition and Jesus seems to side with that second stream. And the word that Jesus used when he says our father is the word Abba. And in using that word Abba, Jesus does two significant things. So first, most of the prayers of his time that were prayed aloud in the synagogues, they were like set prayers, you know, like there were certain prayers that people prayed aloud together and were compiled. And so when they would pray aloud in the synagogue, they would pray to God using certain addresses, right? They would say, oh Lord, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Or oh Lord, the builder of Jerusalem. Or oh God, the redeemer of Jerusalem. And of all of the different set prayers that were prayed aloud in the synagogues at that time, only two of them called God a father, only two of them called God a father. And yet Jesus, when his disciples went to him and asked him, how should we pray, that's the address that he pulls out to use. Right? it's just this, this minimal one in the scope of all of his tradition. And he chooses that one. He says, you know, that, that's the best way to address God. It's a way of addressing God that makes him accessible for all people. Right, that this is a God of all humans. It's not just the God of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not just the God of Jerusalem, although he is both of those things. But it's a God who is available to all. Right? Everyone has a father. And Jesus didn't say, my father who art in heaven, but he says, our father. Right, so that reinforces that we're a human family that transcends boundaries, every single human Second, the language of prayer and scripture in Jesus' time, it was Hebrew. So Hebrew was like the sacred language that was used in the synagogues and in different religious um, rituals. But the people didn't speak Hebrew, they spoke Aramaic. So when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray using the Lord's Prayer, he does it in Aramaic, not in Hebrew, right? So he does it in the language that the people spoke. And that word that he starts with, Abba, It's like saying dad or daddy or papa, right? It's this kind of soft, intimate word. It's a word that you would use with someone that you trust. You know, sometimes um, when I visit my parents in Indiana or even when I talk to my dad on the phone, I usually start going, hey, papa. Like, I call my dad papa, and it has that same feeling. It's familial, but it's also kind of sweet and intimate, so what Jesus is doing here is he's removing like the religious language that surrounds prayer. He's removing the language that feels less personal, and he's replacing the language of prayer with people's native languages, right with the language of their heart. You know, it reminds me a little bit of like when the Roman Catholic Church, you know they used to do masses only in Latin for hundreds of years, and I think it was the 1960s. Some of you might remember it. Second Vatican Council, anyway, they, they allowed uh, the different churches to uh, Steve, are you like, I remember, yeah, okay, we got, it, we got a couple people copping into it, yeah, where you were allowed to now give the Mass in the local languages, right, so you can now go hear the Mass and practice the Mass in English or in Swahili, and that was like such a wonderful change for people who are Catholic to feel like they'd be able to pray and to celebrate the rituals in their native tongue. You know, I think the language that you primarily think and dream in is the one that you can connect with a little bit better. And so Jesus is teaching people they can connect on this very personal level with God. You don't have to be super learned. Now, I thought was interesting, I, I think our Muslim brothers and sisters have a good caution for us in calling God a father. In that they feel like God, calling God something like Father projects too many of our human constructs onto a divine being. Right. So, from a, a Muslim perspective, they might say, like, "Gosh, that just seems too flawed." It could be too easy to read different aspects onto God that are not there when God is holy and and out here. And I think that's a good point that we should remember. You know, I happen to have a great dad. And so calling God a father isn't something that triggers me, but I know a lot of people and probably many of you in here have more complicated relationships with your dads. Or maybe you have no relationship at all. Or maybe, maybe you've got two moms. And some people in those situations have a harder time sometimes relating to God as a father figure because it's placing a human metaphor that's sometimes unhelpful onto God. And so I would just say that if addressing God in that way is hard for you, then try other ways that are more personal, that are less hard. You could address God as a mother or maybe even as a big brother or a big sister. Just experiment with it and see how that feels. I also don't think that God was trying to reinforce maleness onto God here. And it worked in that context. But gender is also a human construct that we can easily read onto God. You know, if you look, at, you know, the, the, the God is pictured in the Christian imagination, right, as one with three parts, some weird mystery, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. But the Holy Spirit, through much of the scriptures, especially in the Hebrew scriptures, has more feminine connotations. And in Greek, the language of the New Testament, it's actually neuter. So I actually think that the more correct way to address the Holy Spirit is, is to say her or she, And God is described in feminine terms in many scriptures. God's described as a mother hen that gathers the chicks under her wings and protects them. God is described as an entity that gives birth. In one of the Psalms that's long been one of my favorite Psalms, God is described as a woman breastfeeding her children. There are some verses where God's even described in both masculine and feminine ways in the same sentence. Like in Deuteronomy 32. It says, you were unmindful of the rock that begot you. Rock, capital R, meaning God. You forgot the God who gave you birth. Right, so God begot us, and God also gave birth to us. And God is generally a more masculine word. It's like saying that God did that thing that provides the sperm. And yet God also gives us birth in the next breath. Right, so it's kind of a confusing metaphor, unless you're trying to say that God is both And. So I often will say he slash she for God now, unless it's sometimes just easier to say he. I'll say he for Jesus, because Jesus came to earth as a man, and usually she for the Holy Spirit. You know, so all of that's a little bit more fluid. I don't think saying our Father is meant to impose like a patriarchal system, but it's an example of how we can pray when Jesus is saying that, that we pray intimately. We pray with a being who is compassionate and who cares about us. Our Father, who art in heaven, or sometimes it's, our Father in the heavens. And that phrase could seem a little oxymoronic, right? As our Muslim brothers and sisters point out, it's like saying, our Father, God is close enough for us to talk to and to call him Dad and have a conversation, and yet God is also in the heavens. God is out there. God is everywhere, both near and far. And again, it's this both and. And I think our Father in the heavens just captures one of those mysteries of God. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed simply means holy. Holy simply means set apart, right? So our Father in heaven, your name is set apart. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, that word kingdom, it it is a deeply biblical word. And it's a word that Jesus uses often. He said, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. Some Jewish scholars use the word kingdom and talk about the kingdom. When we're talking about the kingdom of God, we're referring to the idea that somewhere out there in the future, that love and peace and healing and justice will permeate the entire earth as well as all of humankind. And we believe that it's God's will for all people to experience that kind of goodness in their lives. That's your will be done, Lord. Your will be done in our lives. You want this for all human beings. And when we do experience love and peace and healing and justice and all of those other qualities that make humans thrive, we imagine that it's like a piece of God's kingdom out there in the future pulled in to our present. Right? It's a small piece of God's kingdom brought for the future into the here and now. And this is the Christian and Jewish imagination at work. Right? So we pray on earth just like it is in heaven. And then we also remind ourselves that we have a role to play in bringing these things here onto the earth as carriers of God's spirit of love, right? That we pray for injustices to go away, yes, but we also know that we are part of God's answer to helping to make that a reality. I'd also like to offer a thought here about the kingdom, though, from some of our fellow Christian brothers and sisters in parts of the world that have been colonized or that have otherwise been oppressed. So most of you know I've been reading a little more widely in the last few years I started reading theologians from different parts of the world and from different, um, like some Native American theologians, quite a few African American theologians, some female Latin, they call themselves Mujerista theologians. And I started noticing, um, in particular, the Mujerista theologians, womanist and African American and Native American theologians, were substituting the word "kingdom" for kingdom. So K-I-N underscore D-O-M kingdom. And then I also noticed that some of the theologians from Africa or from Asia would just talk about, they wouldn't use kingdom, but they would talk about how the word kingdom is problematic for them. And so what they would say is that the word was appropriate in Jesus's context to talk about the kingdom of God, because he was part of an oppressed people group, and they had a historical understanding of what Jesus was talking about, right? They had sort of a shared language, but that so often throughout history, Christian beliefs about expanding the kingdom of God got entwined with various Western government policies. So for example, like when European settlers came and colonized the United States, they often came with the idea that their domination of the land and of the people was part of God's blessed plan, right? That they were literally expanding the kingdom of God on earth through their military conquests. We've seen this throughout history, right? The Crusades. And so many of the ancestors those of us like me who are white, they felt like they had like a manifest destiny, right? That's part of our, our American collective story that we had a manifest destiny to conquer the entire continent. It was a divine mandate. But for those who were colonized, For those who are affected on the other side of it and who have suffered for generation as a consequence, the idea of the kingdom of God is associated with people who stole from you, who killed your people, who sometimes killed your family and friends, who took your land, who took your resources, who exploited your people, who made you worship their God, made you attend their schools, in their language, singing their songs, and all in the name of expanding the kingdom of God. So this idea of expanding the kingdom, even for those of them who are Christian, it kind of makes them wince because the concept was misused against them. They know what happens when theology starts to get infused with the will to power. So I still use the word kingdom because it's the language that Jesus used. I think many of us know what we're talking about when we use the word because we have a shared history. It's kind of shorthand theology. But it's also good for us to just remember every single week that when we pray thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven that we're not meaning an earthly kingdom right? that the kingdom of God is not about gaining power or territory or forcing people to accept our faith it's not about having a theocracy or seeking government influence but rather the kingdom of God comes by our laying down our power in the name of love right? Jesus says greater love has no person than this that they lay down their lives for their friends that the kingdom of God comes when we extend mercy to others, when we extend forgiveness to those who, are, who have harmed us, when we give generously to those in need, when we comfort those who are sad, when we provide food for the hungry. And we don't do that because it's our job to save the world. You know, it's not like we're trying to feel proud of ourselves because we can now be like the, the benevolent benefactors to the hurting world. But because we honor the God-given humanity in each and every person around us. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Translators can't decide exactly how to translate that phrase. Give us this day our daily bread, because it seems like kind of repetitive. Give us today our daily bread. You could just say, give us our daily bread, or give us bread today. But there's a Greek word that's used in that phrase that's not found anywhere else, nowhere else in the Bible, nowhere else in all of Greek literature. And so there are three different ways that have been suggested that we could think about it. And I think any of them work. One is give us sustenance for our day with the idea that we depend on God daily for our needs. Right? It's like, Lord, provide for me what I need and no more. The second way is just a little bit different. Give us sustenance enough for tomorrow. Right? And the, the thought behind that is like we don't really need to worry about the future because God provides for us. But I kind of like the third way that was suggested. It's give us today the bread that doesn't run out. Give us today the bread that doesn't run out. And it's like, Lord, free us from the fear that we won't have enough. Enough money, enough time, enough love. The idea that if Jesus is the bread of life, then Lord, let us receive that life and that freedom from worry. Give us the bread that doesn't run out. Forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us pretty self-explanatory. We have to forgive others even if they haven't asked for that forgiveness just as we've been forgiven by God. Save us from the time of trial, deliver us from evil. We know that the Hebrew words ha-satan, Satan, Satan, just means the accuser. And we've talked quite a bit here in our church about how in anxious times crowds can be a little bit scary Groups can get stirred up and they start to falsely accuse vulnerable people of different things. And I think this is some of this idea of, Lord, may we have the wisdom to resist those forces. Save us from the time of trial. Save us from that time. And I think of that line, deliver us from evil, is like a petition asking God to help steer us away from evil. You know, that all of us are tempted to do selfish things that could harm others. And we just say, Lord, guard our height, um, guide our hearts and our minds, and just give us the strength to resist those kinds of temptations. Steer us away from circumstances that might be with like beyond our ability to withstand, deliver us from evil. For the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours now and forever. And this Jesus is pretty much just quoting something from 1 uh, Chronicles, which actually the first chronicles 29-11 is kind of beautiful. It's a little more expanded. It says, Yours, O Lord, are the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and on the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Amen. Let's just end with a little meditation. So at the end of each one of our services, we like to have a time of silence or guided meditation. And I think I'm going to do a little bit more of a guided picture um, for you as as we walk through some prayer time. So, second here if you're able and willing of course you you can just you don't have to participate but if you'd like to you are welcome to just get comfortable let's take a couple of deep breaths get, feel a sense of sound like darth vader <laughs> sense of peace here Yeah, Holy Spirit, we know that you're present, spirit of love. We know that you're here connecting us all together. We acknowledge your presence. So I invite you to start just by picturing yourself. And you're standing um, in some kind of building. And you can just spend some time thinking about what that looks like. And you're looking down a long hall. And you know that that hall represents, like, your future. And at the end of the hall, you can just sort of glimpse a giant banquet feast filled with all kinds of great food. Let's sit in that picture for a moment and just imagine what it looks like and sounds like, feels like. As you're standing there, God or the spirit of love, however you imagine that, comes up beside you. I invite you to imagine that as as the spirit of love personified, however that looks, male, female. And let's spend just a little bit of time just maybe sort of looking at God. Maybe exchange some words. Maybe God hugs you, maybe not. But just spend a little time there in that space and see what, see what that spirit does. If it's comfortable for you, you might even imagine God just like pulling you close and holding your cheek against theirs. Now God takes your hand and walks you down that hall toward that banquet table. Or roller skates you down or whatever seems fun to you. And when you get there, you look at this table and it's filled with all of your favorite foods. Just think like what's there? What would what would really delight you? And as you're filling up your plate, no, 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 no. I've got a giant basket. So God hands you this giant basket that you almost can't even carry. And God says, no, just start putting all the food in this giant basket. Put as much as you can carry. And it doesn't even feel heavy. And God says, go back and share everything that you've been given. Right? This is the bread that doesn't run out. That all of the goodness that is in the kingdom of God, it's not only available to you, it's available to anybody who wants it. Don't, don't force it on anyone. You don't have to give anybody strawberries if they don't want strawberries. The goal, You have abundance. You have riches. You have the blessedness of the kingdom of God to offer to the world. I'm just going to say the Lord's Prayer to end us out. We'll say it together after communion, but just let, let, me, let me speak it. And you can imagine just turning um, to the picture, the image that you have of God and just praying this. Our Father in the heavens, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day the bread that doesn't run out. And forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial. Deliver us from evil. For the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. Amen.